Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to new bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Welcome back to Bibliophiles, everyone. Adam Andrews with you once again, joined as always by the Center for Lit crew, my lovely wife, Missy. Hi. My son, Ian. Oh, uh, hey. And my daughter-in-law, Emily. Hello. Good to be with you guys. What's the news? What's the news from the Andrews fam extended? Uh, it was the 4th of July yesterday. Happy Independence Day, everyone. And yeah. same um, to you. And, oh, thank you. We had the distinct privilege of exploring our city of residence, Spokane, Washington, and finding out what the rest of the population does on the 4th of July. And it was pretty cool. We went downtown, and they have there's a park down on the river, and they light off fireworks over the river. And there were, I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people there. And it was probably 25 minutes of just class A professional fireworks display. It was awesome. That's cool. Time. That sounds cool. We went and saw fireworks last night, too, up here in our tiny little neck of the woods. And I do mean tiny. The metropolis yeah. of the woods. Yeah. We went to a, a little town south of us called Hunters, Washington, which is just a little wide spot in the road, really. <laughs> but I had heard, I kid you not, I had heard at the hairdressers this week from the lady sitting in the chair opposite me that I think they're doing some fireworks down at Hunters. And so with that... We jumped in the car around about 8.30 and headed down to Hunter's Washington in order to see if it were true. And lo and behold, we got an hour of fabulous wow. fireworks. That's <laughs> This is a town. It's not even a town. It's unincorporated Stevens County. Uh, the last census lists 300 people as residents, and 150% of them showed up. It had to be like <laughs> thousands of dollars of fireworks. And I was way too close to the action. <laughs> <laughs> they started the fireworks display by setting off a, a big boom. What was that, Adam? I think they had put an M80 in a garbage can, and they started it off by just scaring, scaring the, the pants off of all of us. <laughs> it was this explosion in the parking lot across the street, and then these fireworks began. And as they were going off in the air and we were saying, ooh, ah, we were getting rained on. All the little parts from the fireworks explosions. Oh, the, debris. the debris was like falling on our faces and in our hair. I thought, I don't know how safe this is, but it sure is fun. <laughs> it was that great. is amazing. Yeah. So we're all very, uh, we're patriotic. We're all topped off with the old red, white, and blue and the stars and stripes and ready to go at it for the, uh, the 244th year of the independence of the Great Republic. The Great Republic itself. Amber waves of grain. I kid you not. Well, good to hear it, guys. Let's dive right in, shall we? Let's do. The topic for today comes from uh, Mom and My Perusal of the Good Old Internet, where we came across a little news item. It's about a year old. In June of 2018, we found that the... Um, actually, you know what? Let me tell detail one first, and we'll get a detail two. Detail one is the very recent publication of the American Library Association's annual list of most challenged books. Didn't know this until very recently, but the ALA annually publishes a list of the books that have uh, received the most, um, uh, what, what, what's Heats. the word I'm looking for? Yeah, heated letters from readers about how can you have this on your shelves? Please remove it for these and these and these reasons. And they publish this list annually. And uh, I was perusing the list recently and noticed that of the top 10 most challenged books of the year... I would probably have agreed with the challenge on eight or nine of them. In other words, it looked to me like the people challenging the books in angry letters to the American Library Association um, came from my general worldview and challenged books for reasons that I would probably have challenged them as well. The actual like what? Can we get a, well, a sample? I mean, yeah, there, you know, there, a lot of a lot of challenges came from the fact that this book um, supports and advocates positions on social and political and um, other issues that I disagree with, 
And so I don't want the book, a book that, that supports issues I disagree with to have the imprimatur of the American Library Association, that sort of thing. Social and political issues that are sort of hot buttons. Mm -hmm. And so I, I noticed on the one hand that, that probably eight out of nine challenges I, I, I and people like me would probably, would probably agree with. On the other hand, in our perusal of the internet, we came across this little item. A year ago, in 2018, the American Library Association, same people, elected to change the name of the Laura Ingalls Wilder Award for Excellence in Children's Literature to uh, something a lot less, well, something not associated with Laura Ingalls Wilder at all, and something more generic along the lines of the Children's Literature Award for reasons that were equally as political and cultural as the reasons these people had been sending these challenge letters to the ALA. Laura Ingalls Wilder, some of the content of some of the Little House on the Prairie stories uh, is insensitive according to modern rules towards Native Americans and other, other issues. And so it was deemed wise to change the name of the award. And I, saw, I sort of saw this as a, as a kind of a, a challenge of another sort from maybe a different cultural political perspective, uh, one that I and maybe people like me would not be so in agreement with. I think in this connection also of the long history of outcry against Mark Twain's novel, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, on grounds that it is racist and its use of the N-word more than 200 times between the first uh, page and the last page qualifies it as an inappropriate book for young readers and the challenge to Huckleberry Finn being included in school curriculum and being included on library shelves and bookstore shelves has been more or less incessant since mm. its publication in 1885. And so I got to thinking, and with Missy's help, obviously the most of the great ideas we talk about on bibliophiles come from her. <laughs> but well, I don't know about that. I got to thinking about the fact that we're, that these two items present us with two different angles on which to consider the general topic of book banning. Mm. And it was a little uncomfortable for me to realize in thinking about this that in the one case, I would probably fall in the category of book banner, the case of sending heated letters to the local library saying, what's this book doing on my shelf? And in the other case, I would stand in an ivory tower on a high horse and condemn all book banning. And mm. I got to thinking about what the reasons for my different stances on those issues might be and whether they were worth talking about. So I want to toss this question out, given that long introduction. What are issues that, that we think are important when considering this topic of declaring one book fit for consumption in some way and challenging another one? And secondly, where do you guys fall on the issue of book banning? Do you see yourself reflected in either one of those categories? So I thought that would probably be good fodder for a conversation. And maybe we start with that first question. What are the important issues to consider in distinguishing between appropriate and inappropriate books? And since we're doing this on a video chat, Emily, I can see your face and you're all ready to go. So you get first crack. Go, Emily. I was just thinking that it's cool that this topic came up around Independence Day because one of the important issues is the freedom of the press. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a great lead in. Now you got to talk some more. What do you mean by that? Well, the, the issue of whether something should or should not be published is, on the one hand, perhaps a moral issue, but on the other hand is a political issue, and it depends on what we're going to allow to be censored or not censored in our country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that is pretty well fleshed out in the First Amendment to the Constitution, which guarantees our right to free speech and freedom of the press, which I would be loath to, to, to give up. <laughs> I don't know about the rest of you. I, I really do identify, Adam, with what you were trying to, to talk about here at the beginning, that I have had my own experience of going to the library and leaving upset to find something on a children's bookshelf that I thought was really immoral or inappropriate in one way or another. And um, my own ideas of of appropriateness have come up against my understanding of um, the importance of the freedom of the press and censorship issues. Mm -hmm. And so in order to flesh this out for myself, I went and, and did a little research on what censorship actually is. 
so that I could distinguish between these. Because I, I think both of the things that I'm feeling here are truths and tension. On the one hand, some things I think really shouldn't be available to children. On the other hand, I don't really believe in censorship or book banning. So how do I um, marry those two ideas together? And what I found when I started investigating censorship is that censorship, by definition, is the legal removal of a particular um, reading matter, something, some legal matter. prohibition. Yeah, a legal. It, this is a. We're talking the government making it illegal to publish and sell a particular book or article. We're talking legality here, not a, per, a particular group or private party's um, um, rightful discrimination. And I use that term. Uh, advisedly. I don't mean discrimination in a negative sense, but I mean discrimination in a positive sense. That is looking at all the things available and making good choices in order to, um, to, to execute their authority in an appropriate way for the, for the people that have been given to them to shepherd, you know, right. as parents, we're always having to discriminate between this thing and that, this good thing and that good thing, or this good thing and that bad thing. Um, yes, you can read this book. No, you can't read that one. At least not yet. And here's why, you know, we make some things readily available to our, to our youth and other things we think we need to delay their knowledge of for good reason, because they're not yet at an age to handle some things. So I think those things need to be, um, we need to differentiate between those two things right from the start. So your first suggestion for what ideas should we keep in mind when handling this issue of book banning is the difference between censorship and discrimination. Yes. And, or, or maybe you'd say discernment. Discernment. Or sen- maybe that's Between a censorship word. on the one hand and the right to pick and choose on yes. the other. Yes, yes. Fair enough. Fair enough. Seems very important. And, you know, when we're talking about public libraries, which is where you began, the word public is really important because those libraries are supported by tax dollars. And so that means government money. And we get into some, some pretty... Um, well, some pretty gray areas here when we start saying that this book is okay to have on the shelf and this book is not okay to have on the shelf. I demand that you, the library, um, censor this book and include this one. Um, because the moment someone does that with a book that doesn't fit our paradigm, you know, we're happy. And then as soon as someone does that with a book that does fit our paradigm, we're outraged. And all of a sudden then, the, the locus of authority is in the librarian, right? The government, all of a sudden we're asking the government to be the gate for morality and decency for the public. Or even for just our set of ideas, whether or it has even, anything to yes, do with morality and decency. appropriateness or yeah. whatever it is, whether we're talking about morality or, or, or um, whatever we think is the good. We're asking the, the government and its representatives in the shape of the American Library Association to be the gatekeepers for that kind of morality and decency. And my question is, do you want them to do that? Because when we established the First Amendment, basically what we said is no. Ian, you're, you're nodding your head or shaking your head or a little bit of both. Go ahead. Oh, I just couldn't, I couldn't agree any more thoroughly with that. I think the problem is, and I think I want to point, pinpoint the outrage because I think listeners of ours and people who love to read and who, and who are bibliophiles, as the saying is around here, probably aren't the sorts who are going to come along and say, well, because I don't agree with this book, I don't think anyone should have it. Right? That's not that's not the kind of folks we're talking to, more than likely. Um, and so I think the outrage is less that a book like that that doesn't agree with our ideals would exist and that people would be able to have access to it, and more that it's being put in front of our children and we aren't being given a choice about that. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I guess I want to I want to take that outrage and point it at the at the source of the problem, which is that we have we have ceded responsibility for making these kinds of decisions to some sort of bureaucratic entity that mm-hmm. doesn't have our that can't think. It doesn't right. think. Right. It's not a thinking thing. So I think you mean by virtue of I the fact that it's a bureaucratic entity instead of a person, yeah. is that what you mean? Exactly. Yeah, it's a, it's a bureaucratic entity instead of a person. So when we go to the library to, to have those decisions made for us, and in essence, what we're saying is no one should have a choice about this except me. So I, I guess I would go back to what you said in the beginning, Dad, and say maybe I would agree with some of the books in that list, but I wouldn't call for having them banned, I don't think. I just would refuse to read them. And I would want, because I want 
people on the other side of that fence to look at me and say, hey, you don't got to read the stuff we think is a good idea. I want to, I guess I owe them sort of the same thing. But in order to be okay with that, we've got to divorce this from a question of morality, don't we? Now, what do you mean by that? Well, it's got to be a a question not of ethics, but of um, efficiency or uh, what am I I trying to say? Not of ethics, but of... um, Of process or something? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, is it effective? Is the book banning thing effective? Is it going to work? Is it convenient? Yeah, is it, well, maybe not convenient, but um, there is a word. There's a, a really precise word that I just cannot pull out of the air right this second. Pragmatic. It's close. Pragmatic is close. <laughs> effective? Um, is it effective? It's not that it's, it's not There's no longer expedient. a discussion about books. Now is it's it just expedient? down to words. Oh, I it's see. words only. Is it, is it expedient? expedient? Oh, expedient. expedient. Ah, yes. And I don't think that it is. And that's a different question than whether it's moral, because everybody's going to have a different idea of whether it's moral. And unfortunately, we live in a pretty relativistic society at this point. So there are lots of things that are moral to the guy sitting next to me that aren't moral to me. Mm-hmm. So it can't be a moral question, then can it? It's got to be one of expediency instead. That's a program question. That's a pragmatic issue. And on that issue, I think I am firmly in favor of taking away power from bureaucratic entities that can't think and having conversations with my neighbor instead. And being aware that when you go into a public library, you are surrounded by not just wonderful books that are all written with the good, the true, and the beautiful at their heart, as you would understand it, Mm -hmm. but um, also a lot of dangerous books, right? A lot of books that you would call dangerous. And if those books are um, alive, that is if they contain like... Like um, like John Milton said in his Areopagitica, the spirit of the human men that fathered them in their purest form, then when you take your kids to the library, don't just set them loose, but mm-hmm. accompany them in the same way that you would if you were going into a public place full of people. You wouldn't just set your, your little children free and say, go, associate. <laughs> you would accompany them, hold them by the hand, because you know that the world is a fallen place and it's full of fallen men and not everyone is safe. We were talking about this a little bit yesterday around our 4th of July campfire, um, about how there are two different kinds of governmental impulses and one of them is to create a system that aims for the perfect society and it comes from a really understandable place and it's a wholesome intention Mm -hmm. that we want to live in in the best possible world and so we go about legislating to achieve that utopia and then on the other hand there's the the government that um, acknowledges the permanence of original sin and acknowledges that the constituents are going to always be seeking after their own self-interest. And that is what the free press allows us to do. It allows us to make our self-interest rule when we go about choosing books. Mm. We get to be the arbiters of what is good for us. Mm -hmm. And that sounds kind of relativistic, I guess, but in a fallen world, that's kind of the only way that it can work Mm. we don't we can't have our library be a utopia of the best because who's calling the shots for that utopia yeah who's defining best right and and something to as to what you were implying a minute ago missy not only who's defining best today but according to the rules we've set up, who might be defining best tomorrow? Exactly. Exactly. You may be okay with it if the, the proper person is making the decisions today. But if it depends on the person that fills the seat, right? The one who's actually making those decisions, as soon as that person changes, all bets are off. So we've, we've basically, in our governmental structure, um, we have mitigated against that change so that the right to... Um, determine the good, the true, and the beautiful um, is left at the doorstep of every individual where it really ought to be in a free nation. Um, we're called upon to to make those decisions for ourselves. And um, I think we want to retain that kind of liberty because isn't that at the heart of the, another freedom that's inherent in the Constitution, the freedom of worship, the freedom of religion? Because really those things that we determine to be good and true and beautiful, define our worldview and categorize our particular religious ideas. 
And as soon as we have someone else determining those things for us, we've instituted a religion of state. And that was one of the main things that the founders were steadfastly set against. Now, it can be probably said, I mean, I gave, I gave the, poor, the poor angry letter writers uh, that I only obliquely alluded to in the first minutes or two of the episode, it can probably be said in their defense that they weren't necessarily trying to, all of them, trying to get laws changed, but, but they may have just been trying to participate in a conversation, influence debate, do exactly what we're talking about doing, which is have a conversation with your neighbor, as Ian was saying, and they just happened to do it in the form of a letter to, angry letter to the ALA. Um, I don't want to you know, tar them with, with too broad a brush by bringing them up as an example, but just to toss that question out to you guys, is that a legitimate form of this conversation that you're talking about? Or, or do we sort of, uh, are we sort of advocating a more general, hey, let the chips fall where they may, and at the level of individual book choices, make our decisions? Take, hey, take our kids by the hand and take them into the library and say, Tango Makes Three is out for the Andrews family. We're going to do uh, Little House in the Big Woods instead. Do you mean, is there, is, is there a place for a public forum regarding the appropriateness of individual books? Yeah, and I ask because I know for sure that you have, you've either written an angry letter or quelled <laughs> the desire to write an angry letter to the library before. Well, I, I actually did write a letter not to the American Library Association, but I wrote a letter to the editor of my local newspaper when I discovered a book that I found very inappropriate for preschoolers on the shelf. It was super politically oriented, and um, the the purpose behind the book was very thinly veiled. Right. Um, and I found it very objectionable, and I don't believe in censorship. So I know that the library in town, the public library, buys whatever its constituents ask them to purchase. So someone in our in our particular town asked them to buy this book, and so they did. And it it's not appropriate for me to say you shouldn't be doing that. Although you know that there is some place that that's appropriate, and here yeah, we go to asking. meddling. Because the truth is, there's there is a reasonable um, means to question whether or not it's the library's. If is it the government's job to form a library? Right. I don't know. That's and a I hate question. to even bring this question up because I love the library. It's full of books and I love books. <laughs> but it does bring up this thorny issue of who gets to decide what we're buying. And because we're all taxpayers, we all do. And so I have to be okay with that. Well, the question of whether to vote for the library levy is another question. And so we don't even need to discuss that one. We're talking about whether to try and force the library's hand, right? Yeah, where, where um, you know, what to purchase is concerned. But instead, I decided to write a letter to the editor of the local paper and make parents aware that this is on the, the preschool shelf. And usually, you know, moms, they go in with their little toddlers and their kindergartners and they say, pick a bunch of books and we'll take them home and read them. And hopefully, because they're, they're preschool and kindergartners, mom is still reading them aloud. I mean, we can hope for that at least. But, um, you know, in the absence of a parent, some of those can be really damaging. I th it's kind of a tricky issue because the ALA is not a private institution. And so they're kind of the beacons of the free press in some ways, because something like a bookshop or Amazon or even a newspaper is privately owned. And they, in, their, in a way, have a right to be one of those discerning figures. Mm -hmm. Um, and call the shots for what will or will not appear in their bookshop. But if the free press is going to reign anywhere, it would be in a public library. Right. Mm. So rather rather than um, telling them they, they're doing it wrong, maybe it's better to let parents know what's, what's out there, make parents aware of their responsibility. This... I want to talk about this issue of challenging the books again, because um, even though I think the four of us would be uh, of one mind on those eight or nine of the 10 most challenged books that I, that I mentioned, um, it sounds like the gist of this conversation is going the other direction, away from objecting and rejecting and hopefully getting rid of objectionable books, and in the direction of letting everybody participate in the conversation without limit or without, um, you know, prior restraint. And I wonder if turning our attention to the other side of the thing that I started with might direct our conversation uh, in that direction. The, the, the question of whether 
the Children's Book Award should be named for Laura Ingalls Wilder, or whether Mark Twain is a is racist. I mean, when when we go to book banning, it it seems to me that organizations make decisions like that. And let me just start that side of the conversation by saying the outcry against Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn is you you can't ignore it because it began in 1885 and has not ceased until this day. There's been consistent, constant, unrelenting outcry uh, against Huckleberry Finn for more than one reason. Uh, the The initial objection to the book was that it demeaned Southern white society by denigrating its language, by portraying the the purveyors of that dialect as as rubes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but more recently, of course, it's the pervasive use of the N word and of of stereotypical attitudes towards black people. It's perceived as a racist book, and has been objected to strenuously uh, ever since on those grounds, and. Um, That seems to be really significant to me because whatever else you want to say about Mark Twain, if you understand Huckleberry Finn at all, it was clearly written to combat the very racism that it's often accused of. And so I wonder if that isn't uh, a major point in the argument against an organization saying this book is inappropriate or anybody saying this book is inappropriate uh, and shouldn't be read by people because it institutionalizes what I think is a misreading of it. But what about the Laura Ingalls Wilder one? I guess it's been a while since I read Little House on the Prairie. I was a child. Her attitude towards the Native Americans isn't really redeemed, is it? Uh, no, no, it isn't. But it is historically accurate. I mean, right. it reflects a particular attitude that was prevalent at, at the point in history at which she was writing those stories. And, um, and also reflects pretty accurately the attitude of the settlers who moved west and and established a community. Yes. Well, like I, a private institution has the right to name their award whatever they want it to be, but it does seem to be an interesting attitude towards authors that we we want them to be upstanding moral figures instead of artists. Well, and here's the problem. We've backed ourselves into a corner because as I was saying a second ago, we've allowed relativism to step in and define morality. Mm-hmm. And so the standard is constantly changing. So an author can write into a world in which he is a perfect gentleman and be a cad months later. Or years later. Yeah, that's absolutely true, Ian. I said months on purpose. Yeah. I mean, the, right. it turns awful quickly. It so I, that's why I, I keep saying I think the problem that we're facing in this conversation is a political one, first and foremost. And it brings up a question in my mind about what the role of art actually is in a society. Because... Part of the reason that we all get our knickers in a twist about Mark Twain is because he's being wielded in conversations that he wasn't participating in right. a lot of the time. Right. That's an improper use of art. We would call it bad reading or misreading yes. of a work of art. But also, I'm not sure it was written. I mean, and Twain might be a bad example of this because he definitely had some political issues in mind. But your average author isn't necessarily talking about politics. Not all the time, anyway. And so this bl- this blurring of the lines between politics and religion, between public decency and private morality, is the problem that we're facing. Hmm. Don't you if think something? Public, if it's a question of public decency, the problem is pornography. Let's ban pornography, mm-hmm. right? And I don't think you'd get a lot of arguments from anyone on that score. Mm-hmm. Drawing the line between art and and the obscene is relatively easy. So let's draw that line. There's your question of public decency handled. It's just when it becomes a question of private morality and the government's business at any level in that problem that we end up with the situation that we're in right now. And you might get argu- you might get arguments uh, that support your point, saying that you too easily draw the line between obscenity and non-obscenity. Not that easy, though, because in uh, 1922, James Joyce came out with Ulysses, and it is very obscene and was consequently banned. Okay, now and- you, you need to acquaint me with the heft and gist of Ulysses so that I can understand where you're going with this, Emily. Well, it was praised by T.S. Eliot and Hemingway and a lot of Joyce's peers for its artistic style, its stream of consciousness, and the way that it contributed to the current art climate at the time. 
but he was pretty crude and hmm. described some pretty um, late, um, what's lurid, lurid sexual scenes. So, what do you do with that? So it was banned as obscene. It was banned. It was. It was. Um, it was banned in the UK for a while, but in in the US, it was banned until 1933, and is now considered a a monument of. 20th century modernism, if I'm not mistaken, and one of the key works of Western literature in this period? I believe so, yeah. That's a perfect case in point. Emily, so since you brought know. it up, okay, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I, I just, uh, I think that makes it difficult to make pornography the line at which banning is appropriate, which isn't quite what I think you were saying, Ian, but... No, it isn't quite what I was saying. Um, but I mean, and I agree with you, that can be a difficult, that can be a difficult line to draw. But what you were saying is that there's, that there is an issue of, of private morality that is sometimes made public in mm -hmm. these questions of book banning. It's consistently made public at this point. The, the, um, um, my job as a reader when reading Tango Makes Three is to agree with the author that ideas about sexuality homosexuality specifically are the most important thing going on and to feed them to my small children so that they will grow up acquainted with the idea that alternative sexual lifestyles are every bit as good as traditional ones. I don't, I'm not sure that that book qualifies as a work of art. It's a, it's a piece of political propaganda. Yeah, it is. And those are different things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, I, I think that's the issue I was trying to talk about is that um, we have somehow gotten our wires crossed in this whole issue, and I think it has to do with that separation between public decency and private morality, both in both in, our, in the political sphere and therefore in the religious sphere and therefore in the sphere of art. We've gotten those two things mixed up. However, you could say the same thing about Huckleberry Finn. I mean, a lot of people would say that Huckleberry Finn was actually a piece of political propaganda written during the reconstruction, you know, and is it art or isn't it art? And I think we'd have a hard time making the case that it's not actually art. So I'll, I say no, that I only about that, but I will say, I, I, will I say, say that only to say that the lines between these things are very blurred. They're, they're indistinct. And so, um, personal opinion comes into play. Everybody has to make a decision about where to draw the line through the pale, you know? Yeah, yeah Beyond sure. this, I shall not cross, you know? Um, and when you go into a public reading room, that line has not been drawn. You have to draw it yourself, for yourself Agreed. and for your children. And if you ask the government to do this, you're basically walking into Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, in this particular story, you've got a world, he creates this science fiction futuristic world where all books, all books have been banned because people find them offensive, because the government has deemed that when people read these books, um, they're uncomfortable, they're not happy. Missy, Ian has his fingers in his ears right now because he's never read Fahrenheit 451 and he doesn't want you to wreck it for him. Is it that or is it he's trying to remember his thought and I, inter and I interrupted him? <laughs> I don't know which it is. But anyway, all that to say that I, this wait, world... Wait, it looks like you guys are talking about me. I haven't read Fahrenheit 451, <laughs> so I have my fingers in my you ears. literally <laughs> didn't hear what I just said. That's hilarious. Well, Ian, all I'm doing is giving you the subject of the book. I'm not going to tell you the end of the thing. But truth be told, th it's about this very subject. Somebody give me a sign. Am I in the clear here? <laughs> Open your ears, Ian. I'm talking to you. <laughs> what I'm saying is that this that Bradbury's book is about this very subject that we're discussing yes, right now. Okay. All right. Yeah. He's basically talking about censorship and what it does to um, to individuals and community. What Agreed. do we do think, when you outlaw all books? Some, somewhere back along down the line, I may have used a sentence that has become the point of what I was saying from your perspective that was totally incidental to me. I don't think the government should be anywhere near banning anything. Oh, I know you don't. Okay. Yeah. But but what you were pointing out, Ian, is this is this conflation of of um, what we think in our private lives, what we think in our hearts, and what we think the um, public discourse ought to be. And yes. Um, and the, the the maybe the universal urge to project what we think privately onto the culture at large. 
And I don't even think that's a bad idea. I don't even think that's a bad thing in a lot of ways. But both both ends of the cultural spectrum and the political spectrum are, um, I think, guilty of doing that to an unhealthy extreme. And this issue of book banning sort of brings it to a brings it to a point. On the one hand, I would be a lot more comfortable if uh, eight out of ten of those books on the ALA list were not in my local library. I'd prefer it. On the other hand, we're still misinterpreting Huckleberry Finn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this idea though of of things that make you uncomfortable. These books make me uncomfortable, therefore they should be removed. Um, this is the very thing that Ray Bradbury was on about in his Fahrenheit 451, because the government basically said everybody's really uncomfortable with all this reading material. Let's just get rid of it. And they established firemen not to put out fires, but to start them and to burn books, all the books everywhere, and instead give people what they seem to want, which is just entertainment all the time. This is the setting for his novel. But and then not he the plot, explores, Ian. It's not the plot. It's only the setting. Oh, would you relax? Then he explores all of the, um, the, the implications of a world like that throughout the novel itself. And I'll leave you to go read that, Ian. You should go cool. read it that's, immediately. That's really cool. But futuristic... On the one hand, but you, when you read it today, you're like, oh my goodness. He was like, in some ways, anticipating so many of the things that have crept into our culture. Like, for example, um, walls, uh, um, walls covered by TV screens. TV was big when he was writing this, right? So he imagines, um, the biggest thing that he can imagine is a room that's all its walls are covered by TV screens and you live in a virtual reality. Or... Um, He's got these seashell creations that the people put in their ears in order to block out the world around them. And it just, it basically just pipes uh, music and story and anything but conversation with the people around them into their minds to kind of anesthetize them where reality is concerned all the time. All of this instead of books and conversation. Books which represent conversation. Yes, because aren't books just an extension of human conversation? When you when you read a book appropriately, when you understand a book, you're you're having a conversation with the author who may not be available to you anymore. Certainly when we read um, John Milton's Areopagitica against censorship and book banning, we are getting to um, getting to understand the issue of censorship and book banning from a man um, who, who's been dead for centuries. He was writing in the 17th century, but his ideas are just as significant today as they were when he wrote them. And so in order to address this very modern topic, this, uh, this sounds like a very Center for Lit thing to do. You would suggest we look back to the 17th century to John Milton. Oh, yes, yeah, man. absolutely do. Go read Areopagitica right now. Listen, listen to this. Reach. He argues... In opposition to a bill in England that was on the table, uh, let's see, a parliamentary order of June 14, 1643, that stated, no book, etc., shall from henceforth be printed or put to sale unless the same be first approved of and licensed by such person or persons as both or either of the said houses shall appoint for licensing of the same. So basically... You have to have unanimous parliamentary approval to publish a book. And so, you know, he's an author at the time, and he's also a political activist. Then he writes Areopagitica against censoring books. And he's, he comes at it from every possible, ang- from every possible angle. But um, one of the things that I thought he stated most eloquently was the significance of books. He basically says that books are the best part of a man. He says, I deny not, but that it is of greatest concernment in the church and commonwealth to have a vigilant eye how books demean themselves as well as men, and thereafter to confine, imprison, and do sharpest justice on them as malefactors. For books are not absolutely dead things, but do contain a potency of life in them to be as active as that soul who was, uh, whose progeny they are. Nay, they do preserve as in a vial the purest efficacy and extraction of that living intellect that bred them. I know they are as lively and as vigorously productive as those fabulous dragon's teeth, and being sown up and down may chance to spring up armed men. And yet, on the other hand, unless wariness be used, as good almost kill a man as kill a good book. Who kills a man kills a reasonable creature, God's image, 
But he who destroys a good book kills reason itself, kills the image of God, as it were, in the eye. Wow. Pretty strong. Nobody, nobody can spin it quite like Milton. Pretty oh, strong. Milty, give it to us. Anyway, I, I just think he does such a good job of, um, of s- framing the debate mm. for us so that we can see what's really at stake here. A lot reason of, itself? Yeah, well, reason itself, he says, and I, you know, we can talk about whether or not we agree that that is reason itself or, or that that is um, the very nature and image of God, but certainly it is um, oftentimes considered to be the image of God in man. That is reason. And killing reason seems like a really bad idea. <laughs> he goes on to talk about the issue of, of virtue, as we've been talking about, and says certainly virtue is, is an important thing to cultivate, but it's been given by God to men to cultivate virtue and not governments. And mm-hmm. basically says that when a government bans a book um, or, or um, puts it on a must-read list and forces it, that the government is taking charge of something that was not given to it, and then everybody who complies cannot be considered virtuous the fact that you're not reading a book that you you can't read because it's not available to you is not a virtuous thing because there was the no decision token, in it, the fact right? That you're reading a book that you're required to read exactly. isn't, isn't virtue either. Yeah, because virtue, in, he says, virtue involves choice. Hmm. You can't legislate virtue because choice is at the root of virtue. And if you mandate it, the choice is removed. And he says, this is really dangerous because, frankly, it creates a false security that causes the public to stop thinking for itself, which is extremely dangerous. He argues that truth can speak for herself. He says, let truth and falsehood grapple. I like that. Let truth and falsehood Emily, your turn. A pensive look from Emily. Well, I'm just thinking that this is, there's some complicated layers because I don't know that the issue for us in our world right now is so much book banning as the fact that public opinion builds to an extent that certain books aren't marketed or are pushed into corners and become unavailable for purchase. And I'm thinking, I guess I'm kind of stuck up on, on the renaming of this award and the ways that, that the public opinion in a democratic way kind of sways the, the larger opinion and in effect mediates what we can and cannot read, even though it hasn't been necessarily legislated. That's a really good point. It's disapproved. Actually, there is some book banning that's still going on, even in this day and age, even in a nation where it's against the law to censor in this way. Um, There was a bill in California. um, Let's see. It was AB 2943. That was uh, essentially an assault on the First Amendment. Um, It was introduced to ban books presenting efforts to mediate sexual dysphoria and homosexuality books they term sexual orientation change efforts and conversion therapy so that is anybody that would um, in any way suggest that transgender ideas or homosexual ideas or anything like that is not healthy Um, any book that would try to teach against it or or um, or present an alternative perspective was to be banned in california by this legislation so well, that's it takes me back to it takes me back to the a question about the use of art, not just the writing of it, but the digest, digestion of it. What is it actually for? Because we we're talking about the difference a minute ago between a piece of, of political propaganda and a piece of art. And it strikes me that people who wrote the bill that you just mentioned have a wrong conception of what art is for. Art is for reinforcing and reassuring and supporting your own worldview and ideas. Right. And so anything that doesn't do that is a vicious attack and needs to be dealt with. And I think the sad thing about this conversation is that I see just as much, if not more of that on the right as I do on the left. Absolutely. Yeah. It's both sides. And those, that's a profound misunderstanding of the role of art. But art the is for asking piercing questions for, for truth and falsehood, grappling with one another. Mm-hmm. Art is for... for depravity and discouragement and pain and human beings trying to make sense of all of those things. And so uh, 
the idea that e- that that whether you are a uh, a conservative or a liberal or or whether you're a, a Christian or or from some other religious background, the idea that you should be turning to art for support is just wrong. That's, you're not going to find that there. And if you do, I would hazard a guess to say that it might not be art that you're reading. Mm. Well, so- you might be right, and I think as you as you are presenting it, I think I agree with you to a certain extent, but. Because politics is a thing of man, um, even even that becomes a subject matter in literature, don't you think? Sure. Yeah, but that's not what Ian's talking about. He's talking about politics not as a subject, but as a but as, as a, a broadside, motivation, a political broadside. Yeah, and that that gets back to what Emily was saying a minute ago too about the um, being worried that some books, because of the very uh, democratic society that we live in get passed over go out of style or achieve a bad reputation and they're not available anymore and there's great prejudice against them maybe um not because of any governmental effort at censorship but because of pervasive cultural attitudes or triggers because of something some idea that just wins the day and so the idea that contradicts it is out and isn't this the risk that we run by advocating a free society by advocating a society where the conversation happens in books. And maybe if truth and falsehood grapple, maybe for periods of time that seem like a long time, falsehood wins. Well, don't you think, though, that really, um, if it's true that in the the battle between truth truth and falsehood, truth can hold its own, if that's true, then those things that should fall away will, without censorship and book banning. If, if really, if really we are in any way um, uh, progressing as a society, and, and I say that with doubt, filled with doubts in my heart as to whether or not that is actually a thing, but I know it's vogue. If we're actually progressing, then eventually the culture as a whole won't want to read those particular books, and they will fall away, they'll fall out of the canon all by themselves, without anybody eliminating them from the canon. And as a matter of fact, if you look historically at printed matter, many things aren't printed anymore. A lot of things that were really well received by their their peers in their, in their own time period become passe, and they don't make the classics list because they don't have any staying power. And the court of public opinion made those decisions, not the court of law. Nobody legislated against them. They just didn't last. And Emily, what, you obviously understand that. What was, your, what was your trouble about it? I guess it was more of a in our own time instead of across the ages. Oh, yeah. I guess I was, just, I was grappling with whether or not banning Laura Ingalls Wilder from a, an individual school book list has, is, has any equivalency to book banning. And, and you're right things will hold up over time and change. And I guess kind of what I've come to as you've been talking is that actually that's a pretty good argument for the public library mm. to make available to the public all of the books, no matter what. Because whenever you do put books and the relegation of books into private hands, which I'm for, um, I'm, I'm for private rights to mm-hmm. do whatever they wish, um, then whoever is running that private institution is going to limit your access to the books. But the, the beauty of the public library is that if it's functioning and it's proper capacity, no one can do that to mm. it. All the books are available all the time. Mm. And we don't miss out on, on certain things because the public opinion is reigning in a certain direction. Yeah. I love that. I hadn't really thought of that, of that argument for the public library before, but that's kind of compelling. Sadly, when I go into my public library, I don't find that to be true. The majority of the classics I find in the book library sale, as opposed to on the shelf upstairs where people can read them forever. Maybe what the problem is, is that we're we're spending too much time writing angry letters and not spending enough time ordering the public library to buy books we like. Yeah, no kidding. If you've only got limited time, maybe what you should do instead is say, buy this one. I'm a taxpayer. Love that. That's great. And I think also, and this is probably a conversation for another time, but the true answer, I think, to the censorship question is, well, what about education then? Do you have so little faith in the discernment of the individual? And then you look, you look around at the educations that are 
at large in public schools right this minute. And you think, yeah, I kind of don't have any faith in those kids either. Mm. I'm not sure they've been taught how to think or read. Mm. Um, they've been taught when to think and what to think, not necessarily how to think. Right. And so I can understand in a world, in a world where nobody knows how to read, where they haven't been given the tools to understand and discern. It's not, it's no wonder to me that, that people turn to the government to fix that issue instead. Well, and that these hot button issues, um, hold sway when we start talking about books that should be allowed or books that should be banned and things like that, that that is a prevalent attitude because it seems like everybody's just trying to justify themselves. And so when they read something like that in, in Laura Ingalls Wilder's books, they want to distance themselves from that attitude because it makes them feel justified and we've all progressed and we're not like that anymore. When, of course, we absolutely are like that. Uh, change the language, certainly, but, but the impulse that drove her to say those kinds of things, to, to draw a line between us and them and call us good and them bad or what have you, that's pervasive. That's just a human impulse. Right. It's sin. It's just sin. And by expunging that particular book from, from the book list, you're not going to expunge sin from humanity. How much better to hold it up? And when it comes up with your students, say to them, this is the nature of man. Such yeah. are you, you know, and, be aware. And in that connection, uh, we should give the ALA the last word here today because we started by holding them up for excoriation and ridicule and did we, or did we hold up the, the angry letter writers? I felt like we were kind of lampooning ourselves because I certainly would be an angry letter writer. It's just not thought through here. We needed to think this through. <laughs> well, whether or not the ALA is the villain of the piece or not, we'll give them the last word. Uh, and their response to the, to the most challenged book list is, is this year, as it ever was, we think the answer is more books, more not books. fewer books. More mm. books. And let me close this episode of Bibliophiles by issuing, for the sake of Center for Lit, a hearty amen. Amen. I agree. <laughs> amen, indeed. Hey, thanks, guys. That was fun, as usual. I'm looking forward to doing it again already. Until then, however, let me invite all of you listeners to visit us on the web at centerforlit.com, also pelicansociety.com, and issue comments and ratings on the podcast. Get in touch with us in the myriad ways that we provide. We'd love to hear what you think about books and life and all other issues as well. Thanks for being here, my friends. Until we meet again, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.